Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, the Human Rights Foundation's conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how we can collectively put human rights at the top of the world agenda. My name is Alexander, and I'm a policy officer with HRF. We are an international, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally, with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in the common cause of promoting liberal democracy. You can visit our website, hrf.org, to learn more. And please make sure to follow us on Twitter for more conversations like this one. We've had guests in the past, including the Democratic leader of Belarus, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, Rohingya Burmese activist and former political prisoner Wei Wei Nu, and Russian democracy activist Vladimir Karamuzha. Before we begin, I want to inform everyone participating today that this conversation will be recorded to be released as a podcast in the future. We'll have a little bit of time at the end for questions, but we caution anyone participating today that if you have security concerns, to use anonymity on your account profile. And if you want to speak, you have the option to voice your opinions without personal identifiers. Thanks for your understanding. Since 2014, the Russian military has fought a war against Ukraine, annexing the Crimean Peninsula, supporting separatist forces in the Donbass, and using cyber attacks to destabilize Ukrainian government services. In recent months, Russia has escalated the conflict, amassing over 150,000 soldiers on the border of Ukraine and threatening to intensify a war that has already cost more than 14,000 lives. Our guest this week is Molly McHugh, a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. She's the lead author of greatpower.us, which explores what great power competition looks like in an era of asymmetric warfare and hybrid influence. Her articles have appeared in Political, Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, and other publications. She is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service, where she teaches Russian hybrid warfare. Thank you so much for joining us, Molly. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Hey, thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm glad to, to have the chance to talk to you guys and to speak to this great group of highly engaged Twitter Twitterati on the Ukraine issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that every day on Twitter we get a new piece of information that points to a potential Russian invasion. It, even in the, just the last few hours, we've heard that Russian proxies are evacuating civilians from Donetsk and that there are re- explosions around the city center. And, you know, the United States has been warning about a potential invasion for weeks and has even evacuated its embassy from Kiev. Um, but I want to you know, take this conversation to look at the big picture because Putin's been waging a war against Ukraine for the past eight years. And, you know, he's talked about security concerns. He's talked about NATO expansion. He's talked about the illegitimacy of the Ukrainian nation and even about a potential genocide against Russian speakers. Are any of these factors, do you think, genuinely motivating for Putin? Why is he so intent on destabilizing Ukraine? I think there's real truth to the idea that uh, the idea of successful democratic Western looking countries on Russia's border is a real threat to Putin in terms of offering alternatives um, that his own people might see. Uh, We've seen this pattern in Georgia, in Ukraine and other activities in the region. Um, And I think that's a key piece of what some of this is about. Uh, Some of it is also domestic for Putin. It's, uh, who he is, what he does, how he wants to be perceived. 
Um, and a big component of this is not about Ukraine. It is not about Russia. It is about us and how Putin has decided to try to influence the White House, to try to recapture the narrative in the West. Um, I think the verdict is still out on how successful that will be in this round. But um, I think the understanding how important um, this uh, series of escalations has been in shaping Russia's engagement with Western nations, um, I think, is a really important aspect of what we should be looking at here. So do you think that Putin has sensed his moment? I mean, you know, he is he's seeing that the Ukrainian people are becoming more and you know, more and more organized every day and, and better and better armed. And has he sensed weakness in the West that they are more interested in domestic troubles or they're more interested and in, they're more divided? Um, do, does he think that this is maybe his last chance to really you know, take over Ukraine, which was maybe what he tried to do and failed in 2014? The last chance, who knows? I'm sure there's always another version of the plan in the bag. Um, I think uh, there is exactly what you said in terms of a perception of opportunity vis-a-vis the West. Uh, There is this moment of a new government in Germany, which is still forming its, uh, its own sense of what its foreign policy is going to be. There's some division within the new government about how they perceive Russia. Is it economic friend? Is it potential geopolitical foe? Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, attention on that. There's obviously whatever Macron is doing, uh, which no one ever seems to know from one day to the next. And then there's a lot of thinking about uh, the White House and the Biden administration what the Kremlin perceives the Biden administration to be and how they think they can potentially try to extract uh, things that they want in this time period where there seems to be uh, a a little bit of a lack of center to the West and its activity. You can argue that this has shifted in the last few months and is moving in a more positive direction. Um, But I I think there is an aspect of uh, a sense of opportunity from the the Moscow perspective that now is a moment when outcomes can be shaped in ways that are potentially beneficial to them. And I think the frustration uh, on this side of the line over here, not in Moscow, is there is, in fact, tremendous opportunity in the region. If you see what's happening um, around Russia's periphery, There is tremendous uncertainty in a lot of places or not necessarily instability, but the opportunity to shape outcomes. And I think the frustration is we are very absent from that dynamic and conversation. Um, You can argue that that the attention on Ukraine has been good, that we've done some things in the last few months that have been helpful in making up gaps we should have filled long ago. Um, But what about everything else? Where's the plan for the everything else? And I think that is what we need to be focused on now. Right. So you've argued in the past that um, you've been critical of the Biden administration for having a mindset that's focused on assuring Putin that we mean him no harm. Um, and you said that actually what we should be doing is thinking about ways to you know, defeat an autocrat, defeat dictatorship rather than just slow it down. Now, what do you think should be what do you think is one thing that the Biden administration should be doing or what has it done in recent months that has been has been good, do you think, um, to, 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 to prove that? Well, I think a thing that's good, and we can't uh, minimize it in any way, although it is by no means enough, is this rebuilding a sense of center in the alliance. And it will be the one talking point you hear from the Biden administration on everything. Uh, The alliance is more unified than it has been, blah, blah, blah. And again, 
important, super important, but that is very much a domestic talking point for the United States. We're not doing this alone. This isn't us projecting force abroad. You know, this is us meeting our commitments to our friends and blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's important. I think in the context of this immediate escalation cycle, the efforts of the administration to try to bring new resources, new thinking, uh, new tactics to the information domain, exposing what they believe will be Russian narrative tools, um, it, you know, sort of the immediate false flag attacks, uh, potential provocations that they would stage in order to use as a as a, a pretext for invasion or further conflict. You know, that all, all of that stuff is new and at least new thinking, which is, uh, I think, a good a good thing. What's totally lacking, though, is a global strategy uh, to counter Russia. And you could add China right there next to it. Um, but I think when you look at the map, what's happening right now, it's not just a Ukraine centric set of activities. There's also all the stuff that's been happening in Belarus that we're just not talking enough about all the activity that Russia has had parallel to this in the Arctic, uh, you know, other places in Europe, in the Mediterranean, sort of building that arc from the Baltic Sea around to the Black Sea, um, the new activities uh, using quote unquote mercenaries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you know, two Russian adjacent coups in West Africa in the last six months is nothing to not pay attention to. There is a lot going on in the world because Russia is looking for these tiny places where not a lot of resources can bring um, significant returns on investment. And we just don't have that same mindset. And we need to look at this as a somewhat zero-sum game with the Kremlin. Where are they? Why are they there? What are they doing? What do they get out of it? And why should we be there too? Right. I mean, people often point to the fact that Russia's economy is roughly the size of Italy's as a sort of source of Russian weakness. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. I mean, the fact that Russia's economy is only the size of Italy's, and yet it wields this kind of global power and is able to sort of shape the global narrative in such a strong way is really a sign that, you know, Russia is you know, doing something that the West is not. They're, they're putting their geopolitical power, you know, um, to play. Um, and, you know, when you look at a country like Germany, which is you know, very rich, but, you know, just today at the Munich Security Conference, you know, the foreign minister repeated the argument that Germany shouldn't be supplying any kind of defensive weaponry to Ukraine because of Germany's history, you know, despite the fact that Germany is one of the world's largest weapons exporters, including to dictatorships like Egypt. You know, why do you think that for so long European nations and the United States have failed to be kind of act united and to use the tools that they have at their disposal to stand up to dictatorships like Russia in Ukraine, you know, in Belarus or other places? Well, I mean, you mentioned an important aspect of this, which is uh, every democratic nation has relationships with not so dem democratic nations that become a drag on it at times. And sometimes it's less of a drag than others. Um, but I think when we're looking in particular at, uh, at Russia and China, which are still just in a different category from any other potential competitors or adversaries, um, there is an intentional weaponization is a term that I'm tired of, but truth to that, you know, of, of national resources for gaining influence and for infiltrating uh, other states in a way that we just do not pay enough attention to. And, and in some ways, honestly, some European countries, including the French, have a much greater history of things like, you know, economic uh, espionage 
um, that the U.S. is potentially uh, not as aggressive on. Um, but the way in which Russia has, yes, its economy is not that great, but if you're in that economy, chances are you're in that economy because everything you have, you've been given by Putin or you know he can take it away if, if you're not using it in a way that, that he approves of. So the ability of uh, the Kremlin to sort of target its limited, but not limited if you view it as a machine you have control of, uh, machinery, um, toward targets, toward national targets, toward cultural targets, toward economic targets, um, uh, is really significant. And if you look at the way that they've, especially the stuff from Syria downward, so the way in which they're using... These it's these operations that kind of fund themselves, you know, these Wagner quote unquote mercenaries, quote unquote, provide security in whatever place they're going to help extract resources, to help generate income, to help keep some bad dude in power. Um, but it basically finances itself. Um, this is a really smart way for a country without a lot of resources to project power um, in a competitive landscape. Um, and I think we need to pay more attention to, to what that model looks like and just stop with this whole, you know, Russia's broken and small and sad and it's going to fall apart. Like that, it's not for right now. Just accept that it is what it is and it acts as a near peer competitor when it should not be. And that is the thing that actually we should be really focused on is that it, it does manage to punch so far above what its weight should be. And why are we still getting this wrong when we're trying to figure out what our own strategy should be? Right. And, and we're not only getting it wrong in ways, we're actually in many ways helping the Russians. Um, you know, if you look at the property markets of Western cities like London or New York or Paris, you find them littered with the luxury apartments of Russian oligarchs, you know, who use shell companies and anonymous trusts to launder their money and hide it in the West where they can then, you know, you know, pay bribes to politicians and offer them places on boards of Russian companies, um, send their children to school or fund radical parties that further divide the West. You know, why? Do you think has the West been so slow about, you know, finding and rooting out the corruption that Putin has been spreading across, um, you know, democracies? So for me, there's sort of two separate categories. And I think one is every democratic nation now seeing where we are with Russia and China and the way that that uh, economic influence in particular is being used to purchase access to our societies in destructive ways. Um, Every democratic nation needs to have better rules about this. I'm sorry, no more Russian board positions, no more Chinese state, you know, company advisory jobs. Like, no, that's a national security threat and we need to have a new system of economic rules that accounts for that. Um, I think the other category is, is this isn't really just like, oh, no, the West has enabled these bad guys to blah, blah, blah. I, I don't really like that narrative. I think the problem is, the bad guys, whatever the bad guys are, terrorists, Russians, Chinese, you know, Iranians, etc., have used the system of, of extremely gray finance that was, you know, originally constructed for guys hiding money from their wives or from taxes, you know, all of these ways in which rich people try to try to hide wealth um, have been extremely effectively built into an industry of helping uh, destroy countries. And fixing that problem now is um, significant because it's not just about Putin, you know, hiding his super yacht from potential seizure and sanction. Um, it is the way in which all of that money is being made liquid for operations against adversarial nations as the Russians view them. 
Um, and if we're just if we're still so far behind in this mindset, aka Germany and its lovely gas pipelines, um, I don't know why every country seems to be more willing to see the weakness in every other country than in themselves. Uh, and the, Uni- the United States is also in that list. Uh, you know, we can look at the UK and be like, "Geez, London, what have you let all this dirty money in for?" And we can look at Germany and be like, "Man, your energy stuff is stupid." But we are not at all as critical about the way that our own uh, extremely yucky finance system creates uh, havens for offshore companies and the hiding of illicit wealth. Um, And we just, all of us, all of us together, we in the West, this lovely alliance that has created security and prosperity for our people in a variety of different ways, we all need to get together and uh, look at this more holistically. And yes, it's going to be a little bit of pain for each of us, but if we spread it around, it's not so bad. And we all just need to bite the bullet and close these gaps. Right. And in, in some way, you know, bring this discussion a little bit back towards Ukraine. You know, Ukraine has kind of been the front line or ground zero for a lot of these things. Ukraine has more oligarchs than you know, most countries and has been dealing with Russian cyber attacks and Russian disinformation for a lot longer than we've been used to in the West. And it seems sort of that you know, the, the lessons that Ukraine has been learning the hard way, we've sort of been ignoring for, for a long time. And, you know, now that, again, you know, now that there's hundreds of thousands of Russian troops on Ukraine's borders and, you know, suddenly reality is staring us in the face, um, you know, maybe the West, you know, it's, it's good that we're reflecting so quickly, but it's sort of a shame that we haven't taken the eight years that we've had to really, you know, take all this um, information on board um, about the tactics of Russia. Um, and so given all this, you know, how do you think, you know, Ukrainian society, given that it's actually, you know, it's been interesting watching the news and how Americans have been sort of a little bit more hysterical than the Ukrainians have been about the potential for an invasion. You know, how do you think that Ukrainian society will react to a Russian invasion and to a Russian hybrid, you know, measures like, you know, cyber attacks and the like? Well, I think even the, the cyber attacks the last few days or in the last week or so that have happened that have been, you know, moderately disruptive. There's been some banking stuff taken down and uh, other things. And what we've seen over the past uh, seven years, which is, uh, you know, an increased tempo of cyber attacks against Ukraine, things in the power grid, blah, blah, blah. Ukrainians just kind of deal with it. And, you know, we over here check out a lot and like go do whatever it is that we're doing for long periods of time. Ukraine has been at war for eight years and that war is one that is very hard for any average Ukrainian citizen uh, to, to check out from for very long um, because it's not just a battle on the Eastern front, uh, which is, you know, hundreds of miles from where you are. Um, It is this full range of hybrid measures that have been targeting the Ukrainian state Uh, which very much are intended to target the Ukrainian population. And so they've had to be aware of this, to learn this, to be prepared for it. And yes, there is like a deep level of sort of cynicism uh, in some parts of society about it at this point, because it's been going on for so long. But I think that um, Ukrainian society is very prepared. It's very mobilized. Uh, We have seen this in their reactions to uh, both the escalation cycle in April and what we've seen since November now, Um, And I think uh, any invading force that decides to uh, go for a pleasure cruise in Ukraine is going to find a pretty unexpected result if they're looking at ground operations of any kind. Um, It is just the mindset of the country. And I think partially because we, the West, check out so often uh, in this crisis uh, and what they really understand is ain't nobody coming 
it's just us, they're going to fight uh, if they need to fight. And uh, they'll take all of our nice advice and thank us for the nice weapons that we send when we do. Um, but this is their country. They understand it's up to them to save it. And uh, I don't think they're going to check out of that responsibility anytime soon. Um, so I think there has been kind of this mismatch in Ukrainian versus Western reactions um, in the past few months. You've seen this particularly at kind of the leadership level where Zelensky is kind of like, yeah, whatever, guys, like peace. And the White House is definitely uh, more serious and um, uh, uh, concern sounding in their responses. But I think understanding this, yeah, actually Russia could invade any day in the last eight years was a real thing for us. And you guys just didn't help us then. So we're not really help counting on you helping us now. But it's great that you want to. Uh, is a thing we need to pay more attention to because we really have we we have failed in closing the gaps that are the temptation for Russia to continue this process, this cycle of escalation against Ukraine, and we just need to to let let the Ukrainians fight the war they need to fight to to keep their own security and territorial integrity intact. Well, so do you think that the sort of Western awakening towards you know the real possibility of war in Ukraine will continue, or is this one of those? news cycles that'll die down in a few months and everyone in the West will forget about and stop caring about. I mean, you know, we, you know, we had this whole disaster in Afghanistan a few months ago and already so few people are continue to talk about it. Is this the fate of the Ukraine, the Ukrainian crisis um, in a few months? Maybe yes, maybe no. I think Afghanistan is a different category because uh, certainly Americans were mentally ready to be done with the war in Afghanistan for quite some time. Uh, and I think everybody wants to put it in a little box and be like, our part is done. It's up to them now. Uh, you know, we did what we needed to and now we're gone. Uh, I don't agree with that perspective, uh, but that I think is kind of a separate thing. And it's viewed as being further away and more remote and something that isn't going to touch us now. I think on Russia, the challenge is, you know, since 2007, and actually it's the Munich Security Conference again this weekend, the 2007 Munich Security Conference was when Putin sort of gave his first big international speech that was no longer early 2000s, 1990s Russia. Hey, let's see where things are going, Russia. It was the new angry, we're all, we're done listening to you and now you pay for what you've done to us, Russia. Um, in, the, in the arc between 2007 Munich and now was uh, a significant attack on Estonia that was a cyber attack and had kinetic operations uh, sort of partnered with it in the gray zone space. Uh, you had the invasion of Georgia, you had, uh, you know, Crimea, you had Syria, you had more Ukraine. Um, and I think, you know, it's the cycle that Russia expects from us, which is they will do dumb things. Well, things that we see as dumb for them strategically, perhaps not. They will do aggressive things uh, they will then back off from the thing, it will get quiet, we will forget, and they will plan the next thing. And they just assume this will be the cycle. And so the burden is really on us to understand that we cannot take the pressure off just because we want it to go away, which is what happens every time. You know, the immediate crisis ends, we're like, whew, okay, that's fine. Like, let's just go back over here and write some more sanctions bills. And that is not enough. That is not a strategy to deter the Kremlin from continuing to push at these, what they view as weak spots uh, against the West to take territory, to prove their point, uh, 
Um, uh, and it, it is the broader strategic objectives, which they have outlined quite clearly, um, which they have not yet achieved and will continue to try to do. So what would a broad American strategy look like to counter Putin in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Syria, in the Sahel region, um, all over the, you know, wherever there's disinformation, whether that be in South America or Europe or, you know, the United States itself, you know, how can the, you know, what are the, what are the first few things that the United States should do in order to actually start standing up to Putin in a real way on every front that he's fighting? I think there's a couple of immediate things. One is, we need a global strategy on countering Russia. You can, again, you can add China into that. You can set up a, cha- a separate China global task group if you want to. Um, but for a long time, we have needed a global strategy on uh, understanding what the Kremlin is doing in the world, uh, why it views it as important. And we just don't do that. You know, we divide everything by COCOMs. The UCOM people don't talk to the CENTCOM people, aren't talking to the Af- AFRICOM people. You know, it's just... Our intelligence is split. Nobody puts the stuff on the board and looks at the patterns of what they are doing everywhere, which would greatly inform how we should be devoting resources to this in a much more intelligent way. So we need that. Second is, you know, in this escalation cycle, you've seen uh, the White House uh, uh, sort of taking the helm, trying to um, put out more information uh, when it is useful about our intelligence um, that will preempt... Uh, Russian information strategies uh, for pretext for false flag attacks, whatever in Ukraine. That's all. Again, that's all great. It's great that they're that they're trying to do that. That they're understanding this is an important um, uh, domain in which we need to compete. But this should not be led by the White House. We actually need U.S. like a U.S. agency and capacity to do this. Um, and right now, you could argue there kind of are some, but none of them have leadership. And it's clear this is something we need for future warfare, and uh, there needs to be somebody in charge of it who's not, like, it's like their eighth job at the White House. Like, we need an actual agency that does this full time. Third, I think we need to uh, actually understand what American special forces are for. And I don't mean special operations forces and SEALs and Delta Force and whoever the hell else. I mean specifically U.S. special forces because their job is going out in the world developing local capabilities, um, developing local partner forces, who they themselves then train uh, whatever the necessary local capacity is for things like countering Russian aggression. Um, and it's a, it's a tremendous intelligence capability to have everywhere these guys go as well. Um, lately, it seemed like the first thing we do is pull special forces out of global missions um, when we feel like guys need to come home and rest longer. Um, it is a mistake in terms of what this capability is and what it should be used for, um, and we need to fix that. And then fourth is just we need this whole-of-government approach to global adversaries like Russia and China and understand how how they connect those pieces, information, economic, political influence, when they use hard power, where they're using intelligence. Um, we need to look at how they are doing that and why we do not do the same thing, why we have not yet closed the gaps to more, in a more cohesive way, point all of our resources toward meeting these needs, because we will be outcompeted um, in these spaces if we don't put those things together. So those would be, those would be my sort of first four. <laughs> it's just sort of, in brief, we need those things uh, to gel back together. I think the fifth and more challenging one is in the United States and like the rest of the West needs to work out its own things that are slightly different from ours. But 
we need to get out of this post-Iraq war malaise that is absolutely mind-fucking how we view ourselves in the world and stop. Like, promoting democracy is not bad. Believing that Arabs can have democracies was not a mistake. Uh, all of the things that have become baseline wisdom since the Iraq war um, that have convinced us we should, you know, crawl up here at home and wrap ourselves in a weighted blanket and not go out in the world anymore uh, are wrong. And we need to really challenge our assumptions. We need leaders that are willing to challenge those assumptions. America does have a role to play in the world. There is no one else who can take that place in the current global landscape against Russia and China. Uh, and it is incredibly important that authoritarian powers not be unchallenged in what they are trying to do. Right. And to that last point, you know, one of the key things um, in supporting democracies is also supporting dissidents. And, you know, at HRF, you know, one of the things we do is we, we do a lot of support for dissidents. And it's been interesting that throughout this whole Russian buildup, you know, at the same time, Alexei Navalny has been put on trial again um, in Russia for completely made up crimes. Um, and so what what kind of link do you see between, you know, the crackdown on civil society in Russia, the crackdown on civil society in Belarus, and, you know, the potential for extinguishing Ukrainian democracy? You know, how is that linked to, you know, Russia's more aggressive, um, you know, actions on the global scale? I think there is a linkage, but I think the what Russia wants to achieve in the world piece is not always directly linked to what is happening um, domestically uh, or as like a distraction from what is happening domestically. It is clear that uh, there are very small boxes in which everyone is allowed to exist inside Russia. And when you step outside the box, uh, there are means by which uh, your digression will be met. Um, Navalny obviously is pretty outside the box, which is why he is uh, paying, paying the price that he is. Uh, I'm not applauding that, obviously. It's a mistake, but... Um, you know, this, I think, it's so far beyond silencing domestic dissent for Putin now, when they are focused on ensuring there is not dissent about what the Kremlin is doing in Western societies and governments as well. And this is the piece that is so concerning uh, when we come up in these moments of uh, accelerated conflict with the Kremlin the number of people uh, in Western news agencies, in Western governments, in elected office, in the broader commentariat influencer space, uh, who think the Kremlin is great or has a point, or we the West have nothing to say about any of these things, and who are these Ukrainians anyway, and what is Belarus, and who cares? Um, that, I think, is uh, you know, a different level of why this should be so troubling to us that the Kremlin has expended so many resources to influence, recruit, uh, infiltrate, soak in money, people in our societies who should have opinions on these things uh, and find other things to do uh, at moments when there should be clarity on this. I think we've all been not surprised, but still disgusted by um, Fox News and its adjacent personalities layering all in on this what is this ukraine anyway it's just a corrupt shell who cares like we have no interest there actually putin has a point and like they're great so who cares narrative that's been happening um and that this is basically unchallenged in the conservative talkosphere space in the united states like that to me <laughs> is an example of 
what Putin does to his own people first, he then does to the rest of us, um, which is really trying to, uh, to, to sort of whitewash what they are and what they want for all of us, not just for Russians. Right. So I want to leave time for questions. So if, if, if somebody in the audience has a question, please raise your hand virtually and you know, we'll, we'll add you to the stage. But, you know, you know it's, uh, one more for you, Molly, is, um, you know, you said that, you know, Russian disinformation is, you know, poisoning, you know, people in America. Is the, is the, is the right response to that to say, well, we need to, you know, quintuple the budget of, you know, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty and start really pushing the narrative of liberty and democracy much more forcefully in places like Belarus, Russia, or China? Now, is there a way that we can steal back the narrative and recommit, but, you know, to those values that, you know, at least in America, we still hold dear? I think there's three separate components to this. One is we absolutely should be devoting more money to uh, to broadcasting, to international media, to how we do these things in a competitive and smart way. Um, it's not the 80s anymore. Like broadcasting rock and roll uh, is not going to be enough to get everyone on our side. Um, but I think, you know, there's been a lot of thinking about how we could do this in an updated, modern and smart way. Uh, and more resources need to go into that and the right personnel uh, and everything else that we know we need. Second is then um, actually we need... Uh, leadership and messaging on these issues that isn't just like a media package and PR points. In fact, the United States needs to uh, talk to the world, to have a message for the world, to sell the values that we believe in, to put a strategy behind that and how we are investing in those values and how we are promoting them abroad. Um, it, you know, you can't just have uh, t- nice talking points. You need to have uh, the operations that go behind it. Uh, and we need that. And I think, you know, the Biden administration has uh, has has put a lot of effort into shaping how they discuss these issues. I think everyone is waiting to see how they are going to um, put resources into these uh, into the idea of promoting democracy and what America's role in that is going forward. Uh, and it's desperately needed and it needs to happen a lot faster. The third piece of that is is separate and it's domestic. Uh, and there are a number of challenges there. Um, that are super, super hard to unravel. I still think a key one is about leadership and the willingness of uh, people with voices in the United States to address um, uh, our own people, uh, to build the narrative uh, of who we are and where we came from and what we still care about in more productive ways. Um, And we've been lax in doing that, which is why we now have the chaos world that we live in. it's not a simple challenge given where media is right now in the United States and what social media is designed to do and is effectively doing to us. <laughs> so I think that's sort of a third and separate component that, that unfortunately VOA can't solve. <laughs> but, um, uh, but we need more creative thinking about that. I think there are some positive things happening in the government to look at the risks, challenges, and direct threats in the information domain and what we need to do about them. Um, But this other aspect, which is how do you rebuild a sense of social cohesion using media um, needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be addressed uh, more, more thoroughly. Well, thank you very much, Molly. We have our first question from AJS. Yes, sorry. I I don't have a set question to ask. I've just popped onto the stage and um, 
I mean, I can make a question up on the fly if you, if you'd like. But uh, I mean, one one. So okay, so here we go. So, do you think part of the reason why Putin is doing what he's doing is because he's been under pressure uh, from the US and he doesn't want to have uh, liberalism imposed upon his people and he doesn't want to see men turn into women. You, you know, you know the homosexuality promotion. He doesn't want to see all of the dysfunctional shit that comes from the liberal Western ideology being imposed on his people and he's fighting back against it. And that's what the encroachment into Ukraine is all about. He's just one step closer to encroaching on the way he wants to run his country and the philosophy he wants to impose upon his own people. Uh, in the same way, America does the same. Well, I think we got the gist of that question. Molly, do you want to maybe talk about how, um, you know, yeah. there are people in the West who are actually you know, subscribing I mean to... You know, Russian propaganda and are being convinced by this? Sure. I mean, look, Putin is not an anti-woke crusader. Like, he could give a fuck about whatever we think the word woke means. Um, I think if you look back the last at least 15 years, possibly more, um, there's been a uh, dedicated Russian effort it, to cultivate allies in the broader cultural domain, um, using, in particular, anti-gay hate as a way to gain access to evangelical groups, to uh, orthodox groups, uh, to other religious groups, to, quote, tr traditional values, quote, unquote, traditional values groups. Um, so this, you know, the, the broader kind of anti-abortion family values, traditional values, religious values, we don't like gay marriage, anti-gay crap, like, that whole space has been extremely effectively cultivated by uh, the Russians to build allies, particularly in the West, but also in Africa and Latin America, places where this traditional values message plays, um, you know, very differently uh, and with a much more religious base to it. Um, but I mean, the fact that U.S. evangelicals think that the Russian Orthodox Church is somehow an ally to them, given what the Russian Orthodox Church actually thinks about evangelicals, is an amazing feat of uh, truly grotesque uh, perversion of hate. And I think we all need to be aware, even if you don't agree with gay rights, even if you personally have an issue with it, uh, as Western societies advance these, um, uh, these uh, expanded rights within their societies, um, the way in which this has been exploited by the Kremlin um, to make people think they are allies uh, to their causes when they in fact are not um, is something we all just need to be really aware of. Right. Um, again, I want to encourage people if they have you know, real questions to please go ahead and ask them. Um, in the meantime, you know, again, um, another question about Ukraine is um, what is a successful de-escalation look like? You know, how, you know, is there, is there, you know, is Putin, I mean, we don't know Putin's mind, but is there, you know, what is the scenario for Putin uh, starting to remove troops? Is there some way that he can be bought off or convinced that actually, you know, this invasion is not worth it? Um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of potential scenarios forward from here. I think what we've seen in the last day is escalated finding on the traditional line of contact from the last eight years. And it's not new. It's just more like the volume is more. It's not like two places, it's like all the places in the last day. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, it sort of fits into the pattern of some of what's been happening. Uh, is there still the potential for a massive or more massive military incursion of some kind? Yes. 
does anybody know what that would actually be? No, we have guesses. Could it be more of the South, you know, more toward the, more of the Black Sea coast, uh, building the land bridge, quote unquote, going toward Odessa, maybe. Um, I think uh, a, a really important piece of this has been the essentially de facto annexation of Belarus, the movement of Russian forces into Belarus, which Lukashenko has resisted forever. Um, and then the, I think a point that's sort of been under recognized is as part of this, you know, Belarusian forces have been sent abroad to Syria and to other places and replaced with Russian troops. So that whole bit should be very concerning to us because that puts Russian forces right on the border of NATO nations um, where they were not previously. Uh, and that should be of concern. I think, you know, Putin could just keep doing this show, just move the stuff around as he is doing now. This tank unit moves there, it moves there, you know, some trains are going, we're all posting the videos on TikTok, you know, whatever. The show can go on for quite some time, uh, as long as they feel the pressure is yielding results in other domains. Um, And I think it's a key part of their negotiating strategy for extracting stuff from the rest of us. I think for now, they see that as working. Um, which is not to say there won't be more military stuff uh, if they decide that that's useful too. Um, but I think they could also just pack up and go home tomorrow and laugh at us. Ha ha, your intelligence was wrong. We were never going to do anything. It was just military exercises. And again, like it wouldn't have any real blowback on him. We've all been paying a ton of attention to this. In Russia, the Ukraine story is not the headline news. They don't really, they're not following this the same way that we are. So um, I don't think there's a uh, there's a domestic cost to him for not invading Ukraine. Um, uh, and he could just like, you know, decide to stop if he if he wanted to. But I, I clearly that decision has not yet been made. Right. I mean, you're right that the sort of the sort of huge Russian presence in Belarus has been a has been a big source of worry, especially since for years Lukashenko is quite fierce about his sovereignty. And of course, the reason for this is because Lukashenko needed Putin's support during the massive anti-government protests um, in 2020. Um, And, you know, do you think that, you know, part of Putin's nervousness about Ukraine is due to the fact that, you know, in Belarus, you had hundreds of thousands of people protesting corruption and dictatorship. You know, Ukraine since 2014, the country's been, you know, becoming liberal and more democratic. And in Russia, you have Navalny, who's incredibly brave and producing these great videos about Russian corruption and bringing people out onto the street. And, you know, even in Kazakhstan, you know, although the you know, source of the protest there, it seems that there were some different elements there, you know, at least part of the protests were also about, you know, an end to the Nazarbayev regime of corruption um, and autocracy. And so do you think that he's feeling actually, you know, not necessarily not surrounded by NATO, but kind of surrounded by, you know, increasing populations, not just in Russia, but abroad that are increasingly against the whole Russian model of government and the Russian model of, you know, finances and and oligarchy. I don't think Putin feels surrounded by anything. I think if you look at what's happened in the last 18 months, you have, uh, I mean, being a friend of the Kremlin, quote unquote friend, uh, and a friend of Putin uh, is no guarantee that you will also not find the sledgehammer coming down on you. And I think that's been super interesting with Lukashenko who was quote unquote friendly, but you know, he also got smashed and 
in Kazakhstan, neither Nazarbayev nor the new guy were particularly anti-Kremlin, and they also got smashed and had more Russian uh, c- uh, control coming into their society when the moment was convenient for the Kremlin to assert it, uh, when there was a crisis, when they suddenly needed the help of the Kremlin to tamp down the crisis, same as in Belarus. Uh, in, in Armenia, where there was a change of government, uh, you again had a moment where Russia found a way, a, a government that was not, uh, neither government of which was antagonistic to the Kremlin, uh, but you again had a moment where they found an opportunity to assert more um, uh, control and presence within that society. And I think this is the story that we're not seeing clearly enough, which is it's not just about the Kremlin trying to build influence uh, in in neighboring states that are trying to break away. They're also re-centralizing control in these places that have had these kind of friendly dictatorshipy models um, as well. And um, that indicates to me that there is a much broader regional strategy, uh, that they are advancing it quite steadily, um, that there are many components to it that we're not paying enough attention to. Um, and that this idea that they're like the Kremlin's actually like fearful that it's being contained by NATO. No, like if anything, they've surrounded us. If you look at Russian military deployments in Syria, across North Africa, uh, the, you know, accelerated pace of, uh, things from the Arctic all the way around to the Black Sea. Um, if anything is encircled, it is NATO or at least European NATO, um, and I think the Kremlin is be, being very systematic about how they uh, how they go about this process of uh, pushing the line further to the west or south, depending on which which piece you're at. Um, and we really don't we just don't see it in the same way, and which is why we don't have the necessary strategy um, to analyze and counter it. Alex, do you have a question? Yes, uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, my question is about cyber attack. Uh, but before that, I also see Walter, uh, he's, he's a Ukrainian-American, he's uh, among the audience, he's trying to ask a question. Um, so what can Ukraine do to shield itself from, from possible Russian cyber offenses? You know, we've been thinking about that for a long time. I, I, I mean, I get that even with the best defenses in place, Ukraine would likely suffer you know, at least some damage. You know, to its internet-connected uh, infrastructure, although you know it is impossible to note in advance how extensive that damage could be. But uh, is it too late for making plans and and the military, you know, to fall back on non-computerized systems, you know, in the event that Russian cyber attacks disrupt, you know, disrupts their networks? Thank you so much again. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, a couple things are happening. I think, uh, although I think Hungary managed to block the official you know, NATO blah blah with Ukraine on cyber, um, there's a lot of, of cyber support uh, for Ukraine from NATO nations, including Estonia, the United States, and others, um, providing capabilities and particularly uh, alerting them to potential weaknesses in systems, things they should be trying to shore up. So I think there's a lot happening in the defense space that maybe we don't see enough of. I think the other aspect of it that's important is um, that there is just this broader societal awareness. There won't be as much panic if the entire system is taken down, as, you know. And I think that's that's something that's uh, important to note on the command and control specific aspects. Like, could cyber attacks disrupt? Um, 
communications from the government to the people and within the military structures and the civilian um, control side, um, I think those are very different things. I think on the on the sort of military-ish and there's a war now side, there's a lot of thought that's gone into this, obviously. When Ukraine says that it's spent a lot of time thinking about resistance, a key aspect of that is how do you communicate when there's nothing except like you and a pigeon and a piece of paper, right? So... Um, I think on on military related comms, there's been good planning, uh, which even if I if I knew more, I wouldn't even say because obviously you don't put that out in public. But I think there's a lot been done on that side. I think on the government communications piece, uh, in terms of how they communicate with their own people and how they communicate to the world, if there is a massive shutdown of their systems, um, I have more concern on that side based on the comms we've seen from the government in the past couple of months. I think there's some really smart people who could come in and help them with that uh, if they want it. Um, but there's been a very native mindset on this in terms of, no, we can do it ourselves and we're going to keep it in-house. And I understand that and I don't uh, I don't discourage it. Um, but they do need to think more about their communication strategy, both uh, to the people and to the world um, in, in a time of crisis. Thank you. Uh, if there are any other questions, please request speaker at the bottom of your screen. I don't see that. Uh, here's one more. Um, Alvaro, do you have a question? Alvaro? Oh, hi, sorry. <laughs> I was muted. Uh, can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. All right. Um, uh, hi, Molly. Um, yeah, I just had a, a quick question about the implications of, of, of this aggression from Putin. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's good to stress that this is the Kremlin led by Putin and his, you know, his gang, uh, not the Russian people, I think. Um, but uh, how do you think this will affect how other autocracies uh, will act in not just in how they repress their own people, but... Uh, you know, we, we can be more specific, like China, how, how will China now see, measure its actions against Taiwan, for example, uh, in the future, if, if the free world let uh, uh, the Kremlin go ahead with what they're trying to do in Ukraine? Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's one that there's been a fair bit of attention to in this latest cycle, uh, you know, uh, are Russia and China working more closely together? There's been some interesting, very troubling stuff in the last uh, six, seven months, particularly how Russia and China have kind of been at least parallel to each other in targeting Lithuania with a variety of, uh, of retaliatory, retaliatory measures um, for issues that they're pissed off about, um, recognizing Taiwan in a more serious way in one case and, uh, you know, helping um, the Belarusian opposition uh, in, in, and the Russian opposition in, in another, um, uh, plus other things, but in a simple form that, um, I, so I think there's been, there's been some attention to this. I think Russia is, uh, China is always looking at how we respond to the crazy shit that Russia does in the same way that they are always watching these Kremlin tactics for influence, for aggression, um, for how they make space for themselves uh, as a template, as a playbook, as things to learn from um, in ways that we're not, again, not just not paying enough attention to. I think the information domain um, and sort of cyberspace in general, but in the information domain, I think there's good examples of this where 
the first couple years of, of sort of the China is building its own uh, online information operations capacity was a much clunkier, no, no, just love China. Here's some videos of, you know, pandas and cats and trees and China's great. And, you know, don't, don't ever post anything about Tiananmen, but look at all the happy pandas. It was much more of this rah-rah China stuff that was happening that wasn't very helpful. And I think starting around the time of the Hong Kong protests, um, the democracy protests in Hong Kong, you see them, uh, you know, developing tactics that are some more similar to some of the things we've seen from Russia in terms of how you influence narrative uh, and build sort of false uh, online communities that are echoing that um, and other things. So I think China is always watching what Russia gets away with, what we see, what we don't see, what we don't react to, uh, what we don't call them out on. Um, in information domain, uh, in in the kinetic world, um, and I think uh, there's always that that awareness. Um, I think the, the situation with China, though, is obviously very different in that they are not Russia. <laughs> they have vastly more wealth and resources uh, to bring to any potential conflict or challenge. They think in a very different way. It's not am I going to survive tomorrow or this year or two more years or whatever the Kremlin's timeline is that day? Um, You know, they really do have the 50 year planning horizon that they are focused on. So they're much more deliberate and cautious in how they approach this, which is not to say they won't take a risk if they think they can get something out of it. But um, I I think it's a, it's a slower process of learning of watching the, the tactics of Russian disruption and figuring out how they can adapt those to their own needs um, I, but I think that's much more of a thing than like an, uh, an immediate action against Taiwan, potentially. Well, thank you very much, Molly. And thank you, Alvaro. Um, this is about all the time that we have today. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining. Um, I hope that this conversation has been as interesting for you as it has been for me. Um, I hope that it you know, wasn't too depressing. I, you know, it sounds like there's actually quite a lot that we could be doing, which is, you know, better thing to hear than there's actually nothing we can do. Um, so in that sense, at least it's positive. Uh, thank you all again for, for tuning in. Um, this podcast, if you missed any part of it, it's going to be recorded. We're going to release it as a, as a podcast on Spotify and Apple Music and various other places. Um, so look out for that. And subscribe to the Human Rights Foundation. Subscribe to Molly for more conversations like this. Um, and I hope, to, um, I hope to talk to you again, Molly, very soon. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on and thanks for doing the series. I think it's important that we all stay focused on not just the dictators, but all of the people trying to fight them uh, in these crazy times. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.